This episode is made possible by those who cared about Hancock. Jerry Carlton was a historian of the community and had accumulated many of the editions of the Hancock News. He would sell many of those papers, and two of those who would purchase them were my aunts, Evelyn Beggs of Hancock, and her sister, Lorene Allen Berry. They enjoyed the papers over the years and then passed them down to me. Those papers come alive again as we look back at the boys who went to war. If you want to find a battalion, I know where they are. I know where they are. I know where they are. If you want to find a battalion, I know where they are. They're hanging on the old barbed wire. I saw them, I saw them, hanging on the old barbed wire. I saw them hanging on the old barbed wire. This is Dodie Land. Conversations from the Madison Isthmus. Here is Gregory Humphrey. Well, hello there and welcome to another episode of Dodie Land. The temperatures outside, as I record, are pushing 40 degrees. That means that the daffodils and the tulips that are blooming are lasting a lot longer than if the weather was warm, but I can assure you the birds look like they came back too early and wondering if they should head back south again. Wherever you are, I hope you're warm and comfortable, and I know that we're still fighting this pandemic. I'm trusting that as we look at 1918 with World War I and the Hancock boys that go overseas, we're also reflective of the fact there was a pandemic taking place at that time as well. Today, if you have had your vaccine, I want to thank you. If you haven't had it yet, I want you to get an appointment and do it not only for yourself, but for the bigger community. Just as they were fighting the pandemic in 1918, we need to fight it now as well. So let's do our part and get it all done for the greater good. We're going to have a fantastic show today. And today's show is brought to you by the Walker Company from Hancock. Though the headlines are troubling this fall, you still need to look your best and feel comfortable with your clothing. The folks at L.S. Walker Company in Hancock understand that your dollar needs to buy quality products. That is why they are now offering to make high-grade all-wool suits for $15. They invite you into their fine establishment in downtown Hancock where you will be greeted with salespeople who will work with you to get the quality suit you need. And in spite of the conditions with world events, the Walker Company is keeping their prices low to make your purchasing easier. When you walk into their store, you will find over 300 patterns to browse and then be fitted to ensure that your suit is perfectly made for you. If you have been paying others $25 for clothes, you will appreciate this fine opportunity to have an all-wool suit fitted for your individual measurements for $15. L.S. Walker Company looks forward to making you look downright spiffy this fall. Stop in to their business today. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. There are many horrors when it comes to telling the story of World War I. One of the most brazen took place off of the coast of Scotland when a troop carrier, the Toscania, a luxury liner, will be hit by a U-boat and destroyed. Over 200 troops will die, 12 of them from Wisconsin, one of them from Plainfield, a man by the name of Russell F. Bennett. On February the 10th, John Hopper will write to his family and talk about that incident. Dear ones at home, here we are at last. Left New York okay and everyone happy. 
The trip across was enjoyed by all until Tuesday evening about six o'clock when our ship, Tuscania, was torpedoed by a submarine. We had just gone down below to our bunks from supper and were going to play cards when we were hit. We had boat drill every day on the trip, so each one knew where to go. All the lights went out when the ship was hit, so we had to find our way to our boat in the dark. Everything went fine in getting out, no disorder or panic. When we got up to where our boats were, we found they were all smashed to pieces. About this time, I began to think it was the water for me. Some of the others were lowered and got away. One of the destroyers came alongside and took off a load. I was stationed on the starboard side, the side that was hit, and when I got on the port side, the destroyer was just leaving. Well, our sergeant told us to try and get one of the boats that were left loose. All this time, she was sinking. When someone yelled out, Destroyer on starboard side, we all rushed around and slid down ropes on board. This destroyer took us all on. That is what were left. When we got off, the ship was listing almost half, and the front end was covered with about six inches of water. Just as we were leaving, there was another torpedo shot at us and just missed the end of the destroyer. I didn't get any of my belongings except the uniform I wore. My overcoat went down with the ship, saying nothing about all my tobacco. That is what is worrying me now. We were taken to port in Ireland, where we had fine treatment. There are 13 of our company missing. That is, they were not with us. They may be in some other camp. This will be all for now. You can pass this on if you want to, and write, lovingly, your son, John C. Hopper. In addition to the letters that were printed from the boys stationed overseas, there were a number of news accounts in every single edition of the paper about either events related to the infantrymen or from their families stationed on the home front. A letter from our youngest sister's oldest son, Ellery Crandall, whose home is at New Auburn, Wisconsin, locates him at Fort Taunton, Long Island, where he is training for the Coast Artillery. Soon after Ellery was 18, he gave up his high school course and went to St. Paul and enlisted in Uncle Sam's service, being first sent to Jefferson Barracks, Missouri, and from there to Fort Taunton. Like all soldier boys, he doesn't know where he will go next or when. He is just out of the hospital where he was well cared for while having the measles. Our oldest sister's youngest son, Harry Bishop, of San Diego, California, has been in training at Camp Lewis, Tacoma, Washington, several months, but he is over six feet tall and broad in proportion. The weight and intensive training proved too much for the arches of his feet, and he is in the hospital at American Lake, having himself treated. Archie Hurst has been completing his three-month training in the artillery school at Fort Monroe, Virginia, and is home on a visit. He was commissioned as second lieutenant and assigned to the Coast Artillery at Fort Adams, Newport, Rhode Island. Mr. and Mrs. C.O. Luce are in receipt of letters from their son, Harold, who is doing YMCA service at Camp Funston, Kansas, stating that he likes his work very much, though the hours of duty are rather long, from 5.30 in the morning until late at night. Harold writes that he was pleased to receive a recent visit from Dr. Joseph, who is also at Camp Funston. Over 50 more Washera County soldier boys have been called to report at Watoma, April 25th and 30th. They will be headed to Camp Grant, Illinois, and a portion of them then to Columbus Barracks, Ohio. Following are those being called from western Washera County include Summer E. Wood from Plainfield, Rudolph Plotz, Coloma, Floyd D. Adams, Plainfield, Felix Shalusky from Hancock, Walter G. Endress, formerly of Coloma, now of Beloit, A.B. Christensen of Plainfield, Jesse Thompson of Coloma, Leon L. Ransom of Plainfield, R.C. Miltimore, Plainfield, 
Clyde Ellis Plainfield, and William Rush from Coloma. After an enjoyable visit among his people here several weeks, Bert Levette has left Tuesday for New York to enter the Navy again. Bert has been in the service eight years and for some time has held the position of chief gunner. He was accompanied as far as portage by his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Chaz Levette. Their youngest son, Aber, also a new member of the Navy, is at present doing land duty in Boston. The following note from attorney John Conant, who left Westfield last week to prepare himself for one of Uncle Sam's aviators, will be of interest to hundreds of newsreaders. Dear friend Roy, please send my paper to Barracks Number 1, Champaign, Illinois, for a while. Don't know for sure how long as I am having trouble getting by with my left eye. May not be able to stay in the air service for very long. Mike Rosell, who has been in training at Camp Dodge, Minnesota since last September, visited his people here last week. He was working in North Dakota when drafted, and notwithstanding, he has a wife and three small children dependent on him for support. We are told that his claim for exemption was rejected. Our soldier boys at Camp MacArthur in Waco, Texas, must have had a swell Thanksgiving feast, judging from the elaborately printed menu kindly sent to us by Robert Runnels of Company D, 119th Machine Gun Battalion. An embossed U.S. flag and colors embellishes the front page of the menu, and the menu included oyster soup, olives, celery, pickles, head lettuce with Thousand Island dressing, roast turkey, mashed potatoes, brown gravy, oyster dressing, cranberry sauce, mixed nuts, rutabagas, assorted fruits, cigarettes, cigars, pie, ice cream, cake, coffee, tea, and cider. When you pour a tulip, a sweet yellow tulip, and I wore a big red rose. When you caressed me, was then heaven blessed me, what a blessing, no one knows. The war was not only being fought in Europe. It was also being fought on the home front, as evidenced in the pages of the Hancock News, such as this story around Thanksgiving time of 1917. There was a fine attendance at the Union Thanksgiving service in the M.E. Church. Reverend Cook spoke feelingly on Thanksgiving and the home, while Reverend McManus let his remarks take a stirring patriotic turn, applying to the nation. The musical numbers were good, At the close, Reverend McManus said, These Congregationalists present won't feel they have been to meeting unless a collection is taken, to which Reverend Cook responded, Let it be for the Red Cross. The sum of $9.18 was thus secured and turned over to the local chapter. The senior and junior classes of Hancock High School gave a patriotic banquet at the high school auditorium on Thanksgiving evening for the home soldier boys, their parents, the alumni, and school board. A delightful three-course dinner was served by the domestic science department to about 75, after which there were several speeches and songs. Professor Timble acted as master of ceremonies in a very pleasing manner. A most earnest invocation was offered by Reverend Cook. Harley Wiley gave an able appreciation on behalf of the Alumni Association, of which he is its president. Clifford Jones pleasingly told of his hopes and ambitions to serve Uncle Sam as an aviator. Harry Moores gave so interesting account of his three months' activities in the officers' training school at Fort Sheridan, Illinois. George M. Scott spoke on behalf of the school board and home folks. Two songs by Miss Florence Scott were much enjoyed. And then this article right before Christmas. 
Notwithstanding the war and consequent high prices of everything, the home stores never looked more inviting with their displays of holiday goods than now. The cheaper trinkets are not so much in evidence as in years before, but more substantial and useful articles are to be found in abundance, and people must be hard to please indeed if they can't find suitable presents for all. And there was an idea to send to a soldier stationed overseas. A small, neat portfolio to carry stationery, pen, and pencil for the soldier is one of the gifts that can be made, and it can be done so right at home. It's a simple affair of substantial brown denim, and it requires nothing more than some thread and snap fasteners to make a very complete and very handy writing case for a soldier. In late 1917, it was noted in the paper that all men in the Navy are volunteers. The American Navy, now 223,000 strong, is made up entirely of volunteers, the paper said. There's not a drafted man in it. Every blue jacket went in because he preferred the Navy to any other branch of the military service. Many persons have mistaken ideas about service in the Navy, particularly since the Selective Service Law went into effect. Some people think that after a man is drafted, he may be sent to either the Army or the Navy. That is a mistake. A drafted man goes into the Army only, never into the Navy. The only way to get into the Navy is to volunteer. A man who registered and who has a number still has a chance to enlist in the Navy, but he must enlist in the Navy before he is called for service in the new National Army. Up to the time a man is called for examination, he can enlist with whatever service he desires, but after that, he can do nothing but serve in the Army. Elsewhere in today's news, it is reported that President Wilson's message to the people of this country, strongly urging a great drive for 10 million new Red Cross members between December 16th and the 25th of 1917. There is urgent need for more funds and more workers in this valuable organization, and every true American should belong if possible. The news editor's wife has conscientiously endeavored to observe the meatless and wheatless days in their home, and also tried out numerous new recipes for saving in other ways as well. The other day it was reported that she constructed a war cake, and if a piece of it wouldn't make a fellow feel like fighting, well, we don't know what would. No, and they don't mean fighting in to kill anybody, but fighting for another piece. Hardy har har. It was really delicious, and we would publish the recipe, the paper reports, except for the fact that the Congressional Lady Aid Society are selling it for only five cents per copy. And according to Mrs. Nina Caves, they can also get a recipe for chocolate brownies and one for golden drop cookies as well. And they're doing this at the same low price and all for the benefit of the Ladies' Aid Society. In the first portion of 1918, preparations were nearly complete for a rousing patriotic rally to be held in the Feigl Schoolhouse in South Hancock come Monday evening, the paper reported. Efforts are being made to get a speaker from Madison for the main address, District Attorney Conant of Westfield, Frank Plotz of Coloma, and others will also take part. A quartet from Westfield and one from Hancock are to sing, and the audience will unite in singing national songs. When the people of a country district are energetic and patriotic enough to provide such an entertainment, their schoolhouse and yard should be filled with loyal citizens for miles around. Better come out. Monday evening, you may hear something new. And there were many articles in the paper which struck a tone which would have been duplicated numerous times in publications from coast to coast during World War I. It was a tone that struck hard at Germany and Germans, as this story from 1918. 
Lorville, a quarrying community in eastern Washera and made up largely of a foreign population, was the first place in the county to oversubscribe its quota in the third Liberty Bond campaign. These people seem to appreciate more fully the blessings of a free country than many who were born here. The first sale of bonds in Lorville was made on April 6 to a man named George Lerner, a subject of Germany. This man left Germany about five years ago to come here. He is unable to read or talk English, but he does understand the conditions as they were in Germany when he left, and for that reason he came to this country. He has purchased Third Liberty loan bonds to the amount of $800, all he has saved since coming here, and is desirous of buying more as soon as he is able. He knows in his own mind what is right and what is wrong, and is willing to help the one who is right. Surely, if a subject of Germany, who understands the conditions over there, is willing to help our Uncle Sam with his money, then each and every citizen of the United States should do his level best for his own country. That tone and feel of writing is evident in many columns and many stories during World War I and can be found within the pages of the Hancock News. I want to have a conversation now with a person who is most often in your kitchen. Are you desiring a wickless, odorless stove that lights and cooks like those hooked up to city gas? You know, the ones your relatives talk about when they visit, or the kind you have read about in your local newspaper. Well, now you can have the stove of your dreams. You know the one. Burners with heavy annealed iron which last a lifetime. The burners giving intense heat and saving fuel as they heat directly under your pots of homemade soup or the stew being warmed from last night's supper. The Detroit Vapor Oil Stove is the future of cooking and baking, and it can be yours. The stove is splendidly built, beautifully finished, and get this, it requires no blacking like your current stove. Your back-breaking, bending, and stooping over comes to an end, as now your family will see that you have a stove that is extremely simple to use, safe, and quick-working. Now, get down to L.S. Walker Company in downtown Hancock and have one of the knowledgeable salespeople show you the Detroit Oil Vapor Stove. Your family will thank you for the purchase. If you are enjoying today's podcast, I strongly suspect you will also enjoy the episode dealing with the 1918 pandemic as reported by the Hancock News. Wherever you hear podcasts, be it Apple, Google, Spotify, or just about anywhere else, you will find the Doty Land Podcast. Also look for Doty Land on your Facebook, as there are pictures, information, and insight into today's episode and all the others. And as always, thank you for being a part of Doty Land. And now, on with the show. Efforts to raise funds for the Red Cross and to participate in the programming for the Red Cross to assist the boys overseas was a continuous theme in page after page, edition after edition of the Hancock News. Notwithstanding the storm, bad roads, and cold weather, there was turnout enough at the Red Cross dance Friday night so that the nice sum of over $46 was cleared from the dance and lunch. Besides, all those present seemed to agree that they never had a better time at a gathering of this kind. The music by Hamilton's orchestra, reinforced by Hollis Bartz of Coloma with his trap drums, was extra good and generously furnished free. Domestic science girls of the high school in Red Cross aprons and caps served the lunch very nicely. There is no truth in the report that a lot of work done by the Hancock Red Cross was, quote, so poor that it had to be sent back, unquote. No work has ever been sent back here or even criticized. The great call has been for more like it. Instead of repeating such Kaiser talk, more people are urged to join with us by membership, contributions, or labor in the good work now so badly needed. 
The yarn is doubled in all sweaters knit by Hancock Red Cross ladies. That these garments are better than the ordinary is quickly recognized wherever seen. A home talent show to be given under the auspices of the Royal Neighbors of MWA Opera House Friday evening, March 15th, is rapidly rounding into shape under the able direction of Frank Pond, who has been engaged to conduct rehearsals and stage the production. Mr. Pond is well known to theatergoers in Hancock and vicinity, having played several engagements here in years past, which have always given the best of satisfaction. He assumes a leading role in one of the acts in which he sings some of his latest original song hits. This show promises to be something decidedly unique and out of the ordinary. It is made up principally of local talent and combines everything the word vaudeville implies, a solid two-hour program consisting of music, comedy, drama, songs, and pictures. Everything new, neat, novel, and strictly refined. A social dance will be given after the show. On April the 26th, 1918, above the Hancock News masthead were the words, Who said Uncle Sam has started something he can't finish? Buy bonds and help. Raising bonds and promoting its cause was something that the Hancock News did over and over, as it did with the listing of new Red Cross members. Almost every edition of the paper and in different portions of each edition, there would be the newest members who were made up of local Red Cross members, such as... Saul Cohen, Mrs. Eugene Silsby, Fayette Ashley, Mrs. Susan Ashley, Emil Bone, Sr., Mrs. Emil Bone, Harold Humphrey, Clifford Humphrey, Leela Marshall, Nick Johannes, Carol Gear, Mrs. Neva Humphrey, Mrs. Eva Kelly, Mrs. Clara Lowell, Mrs. Lily Walker, Archie Gear, Opal Gibbs, and Laurel Gibbs. But there were also downsides to too much pressure being applied on locals, such as this story. To the public. In answer to Mr. Killeen's statement published in last week's news, I will say that I did not refuse to buy Liberty Bonds, but Eugene Caves informed me that unless I signed his card and gave 3% of all my property, they would accept nothing. This is my reason for not investing. My financial condition comes from hard work since my boyhood and am still at it and feel that I am doing my bit in the way of making the soil of Washera help to feed the world. Signed, respectfully yours, E.E. Ostrom. The Red Cross also had notes of thanks for people who contributed money, such as Fred Challoner, given thanks for a donation of $5, and noting that the following articles were shipped by our Red Cross on January the 21st, 1918. 13 sweaters, 8 helmets, 11 pairs of wristlets, and 30 pair of crusocks. The Hancock Red Cross now had, they noted, in the early part of 1918, 553 members. This being the week for the big Red Cross Christmas drive for 10 million new members, great efforts are being put forth all over the land. In Hancock, much personal solicitations is being done. Practically every business, it was noted, has a large Red Cross service flag in the window to remind everyone passing along the street of the great drive now underway. It was noted on December the 21st of 1917 that the Hancock Red Cross was given a $52 boost by the Oyster Supper at the J.L. Ripton home in South Hancock on Thursday evening. Mr. and Mrs. Ripton were generously furnishing the oysters, crackers, milk, and everything else for a dandy good supper, except a few cakes that were brought in by others, so there were no expenses to be deducted from the receipts. In addition to that, seven new members were secured and others sufficiently interested so that they have been joining since. 
The gathering was so enjoyable, the Hancock News reported, that the young folks, and even some of the older ones, couldn't break away until after 3 o'clock the next morning. That does sound like a, a very good time. Back up your troubles in your old kids' bag and smile, smile, smile. While you Lucifer to light your bag, smile boys, that's the style. Life changed in big ways and small for people, whether they went to war in Europe or stayed on the home front. The war needs of our country require a speeding up of all schoolwork this spring to relieve the labor situation as much as possible, the Hancock News reported. To this end, it is urged that the usual spring vacation be shortened or omitted altogether in all schools. The work in all grades above the sixth should be reduced by omitting certain portions and shortening others. The principal or teacher in charge of the school should make plans immediately for this and put them into operations at once. There were also new railroad timetables. As a war measure, a change was needed for service for the Sioux Line in and out of Hancock. So the change became effective that train number 502, the passenger south, will leave Hancock at 11.19 a.m. And train number 501, the passenger north, will leave Hancock at 5.46 p.m. The number 504 train, the freight combination south, leaves Hancock at 9.45 a.m. on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And train number 503, the freight combination north, leaving Hancock at 7 a.m. on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Throughout the war, the Hancock News would print various letters from service people who were stationed overseas. The soldier would write to either a cousin, a sister, or parents, and that person would then send the letter along to the newspaper where it would be read by all. Such as this from Private Joseph E. Parkin. Dear folks at home, on February the 10th, 1918, he writes, I will write you a few lines to let you know that we are safe and sound and well after our experiences across the water. We were on the Tuscania traveling along nicely until February 5th at 5.45 p.m. when the torpedo hit us. I suppose you have read it all in the papers before this, but we'll send you a piece from one of the papers here which you can read and then send to others. I will write again soon. Is everybody well at home? Tell them all that I am still alive and feeling fine. We'll say goodbye for now and do some washing. Write soon and tell all to write. Carlton J. Barker, a former Hancock boy, whose people now live at Troy Center, is serving Uncle Sam as a private in Company E, 107th in England, and they say he is writing somewhere in France. Dear friend, well, here goes for a few lines. Received your letter about the first of the month and couldn't answer much sooner. Everything is going okay over here, though it is rather hard when one strikes a new country. Everything is about 30 years behind the times over here. On account of spring, we are working in mud all the time and are pretty well used to it. Found lots of green fields when we struck here, and a week later there was quite a lot of snow. Had quite a time coming across. About two days out, we struck a four-day storm, and then the fun commenced. Fellows commenced getting seasick. We had to go down two decks for mess. The floor was smooth steel, and when the ship would roll, the boys would slide from one side of the deck to the other. Was some sight to see them going with mess kit in one hand and cup in the other, stopping against the side and starting back. Well, guess I'd better quit and do a little work. 
Clifford Jones's dreams of past years have at last come true. He is now on the wing in the Signal Corps Aerospace Squadron at Ebert Field in Lone Oak, Arkansas, as may be seen by the following excerpts from a letter written to his parents, Mr. and Mrs. E.B. Jones. He writes, My dear folks, that which I have struggled for is mine. I am flying in all the glorious sensations. This is the greatest. The whole earth fades away and grows small, and it all looks like a painted picture. When one gets into the air, he wonders what in the world is holding him up. Dad, it is wonderful. We flew about 3,000 feet high today and then spiraled down. When some fellows head downward, it makes their stomach feel light, but it did not affect me a particle. I could tell if the machine listed or tipped a quarter of an inch. When up that high, it seems quite a puzzle just how you are going to get down. All you have to do is shut off the motor and push forward on the joystick, and the old earth gets larger and more distinct Then you level off and glide as close to the ground as you dare, waiting for the machine to settle down and hit. Then it bobs and settles down and finally stops, and then you taxi on the ground back to the deadline in front of the hangars. What a great style of writing, and it almost takes you in the air with him. Those are just part of the feel and the imagery that comes from so many of these delightful letters. Mr. and Mrs. Howard Foster received a letter from their son, Ed, who was serving Uncle Sam somewhere in France, as the letterhead says. The letter was mailed May 21st and was about 17 days in transit. There was a report in circulation a few weeks ago that Ed had been severely wounded. While his people here were not notified and therefore took little stock in the rumor, still the letter they received from him last week afforded more than ordinary relief. Among other things, Ed writes, Dear Mother and Father, It is Sunday, so we'll try to write you a few lines, although there is not much to write about. There isn't much doing here on Sunday. I went to church, but couldn't understand much what was said. Was inside of one church that was built about 100 years before Columbus discovered America. It was a grand old place. Edward Ewick wrote, Quote, we had quite a time learning the value of English money. Whenever a bunch of us U.S. soldiers go down, the kids fairly swarm around us begging for American pennies and other souvenirs. It's fun to see them pull out the buttons on our coats with their chubby little fingers. The grass is greening out here, rains about every day. At present, we are in a resting camp, and as soon as the U.S. can fit us out with new equipment, we will be making for the front. There are now only three men missing from our company of 70, one of them being Russell Bennett of Plainfield. I am well. Give my regards to everybody. Signed, Edward A. Ewick. The following letter, written by Harold Luce at Camp Funston near date of January 26, to his parents, Mr. and Mrs. C.O. Luce, will be of interest to many admirers of the young man who left his college course and volunteered to serve in the Army. From January 26, 1918, my dear folks, Your two fine letters came this morning, and they are great. You don't know how I appreciate them, and I can't tell you. It seems so funny to hear about you having snow and cold weather up there when it is so warm here that I am going without an overcoat. It is like May weather here. It is nearly a month since I left home. It doesn't seem possible that it has been so long, but when you have to put in 16 hours a day, time doesn't linger long. And when I'm occupied with so much, I can't think of the passing of time. My work has been extensive enough also so that I think I can give you a good estimate of its qualities. There is nothing in the whole camp except the YMCA to give a soldier a touch of home life. That seems like a big statement, but it is true. On February 14, 1918, Horace Moore wrote, Dear friend, 
Some of the sleeveless jerseys were given out yesterday to the crew of our ship. I had the good fortune of getting the one you made. Perhaps I should say one of yours, as you likely have made more than just one. When you made the jersey, I guess you expected some soldier to get it, but I assure you he could not appreciate it more than I. Although the boys of the Navy do not fight in the trenches, they are responsible for our soldiers safely reaching France, and their work is equally perilous, because they must fight the terrible storms which are very frequent in the warring waters, as well as enemy raiders and subs. The weather has been very cold on the water, and the boys were very thankful to get the garments. I hardly think anyone can realize what a great work the Red Cross is doing in our country's time of strife. The women of the United States are certainly being loyal to the cause. Again, thanking you for the jersey. I am respectfully yours, Horace E. Moore. A letter under date of September the 12th from Oscar Losey of Supply Company 331st says, We left Camp Robinson a week ago this noon, arriving in Chicago that evening. Did not see much of that city as we returned to our Pullman sleepers just after we passed the stockyards. Morning found us in Battle Creek, Michigan. We went up into Port Huron and detrained for a short march, then again entrained and on to London, Paris, and Hamilton, Canada. At Niagara, we were again detrained and marched up to view the falls. Something great, but a better view of it might have been had it not been around midnight. I went to bed as soon as we got back and awoke in hilly Pennsylvania. Here we were in the mountains where we saw some fine sights, which also included coal miners and the coal mines themselves. This letter comes from Private Earl D. Wilder. My dear ones at home, how are you all? Hope fine. Am safe on this side now. Suppose you were worried about me, but am all right. Have a bad cold, but guess I will get over it. Am rather tired as we have been on the go a month, more or less. This is a swell country. What I have seen, of course, that wasn't all. The boys are all feeling as well as could be expected after what happened. Suppose you have read of it. If not, we'll say this much, that the boat was torpedoed, but guess there are none of the boys of our company missing, not that we are certain of. They are gradually appearing on the scene. Tell all the folks I know, hello for me, and answer soon, your loving son. Mrs. Frank Sigourney is in receipt of a letter from her brother, Royal Pyrrhus, who is serving in Company F, 2nd Supply Train, somewhere in France, as the letters always say. Among other things, Royal writes, quote, have been busy moving and had no chance to write. We moved our YMCA with us, just got it set up, and had a moving picture show in it last night. We surely have fine roads to travel on in France, and also see a lot of fine scenery. Have seen a little of Paris. Our mail has been tied up for a while, but since we were transferred, it reached us finally. We have a fine camping ground now. Arnold Sorensen, a local soldier boy, is training at Camp Wadsworth, South Carolina. He writes to his sisters under the date of June the 13th. Dear sisters, have been getting mail sent to me a month ago, moving us from Company A, 54th, to Company E, 53rd, balled the mail all up. Glad you girls have nice places to work. We had an examination today, and I came near not passing. Don't know yet how I will come out. Many of the boys are up for a discharge now. Think we will be leaving here soon for some other camp. Guess we'll go farther north, for it's too hot down here for us. I'm in with a nice bunch of guys. The fact is, they all have to be nice here. I'm at the YMCA now. It's a fine place to write, and well-filled every night. The following letter from Frank J. Wiley, Jr., who resigned his position in the Hancock News Office to enlist in the Navy, will be of interest to his many readers of this paper. Great Lakes, Illinois, August 18, 1918. Dear Mr. Thompson, 
As I promised, we'll write you a letter. We arrived here August 14th and have been quite busy for all the time until today. This is indeed a beautiful place and is all that I imagined it would be. On Thursday, we were taken for inoculation, a part of the program which every rookie fears, but which is nothing serious. I took my shot and ate dinner. Later, we marched in our uniforms. While standing in the hot sun, one of the men became dizzy from the effects of inoculation and fell onto a bench here. I was wondering what kind of feeling it was when all at once the buildings began to walk away and the ground came up to meet me. I knew what was happening, but couldn't help it. I saw some men coming with stretchers, and I began to get better in a hurry. In 20 minutes, I was laughing at the next fellow in a similar situation. Frank Jack J. Wiley. Of all the letters I read in the Hancock News from soldiers, this next one is my personal favorite. Mr. and Mrs. E.M. Conant are in receipt of the following letter from their son, Relly, written last Sunday, from Broadway, New York. Dear Mother and Dad, I am about to be transferred again, and it's the transfer I've been dreaming about for a year, to France. The boat sails within a few hours, and when you get this, I'll be way out on the Atlantic. I've been used exceptionally well in New York and have had a wonderful time here, but am glad to leave it for a place which will be much more interesting. Don't worry about subs, for they don't merit that much consideration if they meet our convoy destroyers. It will be their funeral, not our misfortune. Sorry you can't be on the pier to wave me goodbye, but I'll think of you as Miss Liberty fades away. It won't be for long, I'm sure, and there we can talk it all over and congratulate ourselves on being so lucky as to be in on the push and to come home with the boys who will Americanize Berlin. So long for a month. Your loving son, Relly. A letter from Urban J. Sartell, a former Hancock boy who enlisted from Janesville and is now with the AEF in France, asks the news to find out if any Hancock boys are near him, and if so, will they look him up? A part of Irvin's letter is as follows. France is some country, but the people are many miles behind the times. Most all the Frenchmen wear some sort of a uniform, some of which have apparently been stored since the time of Caesar and Napoleon. Many of the women are dressed in black. None of the French girls for mine. Wooden shoes do not appeal to me. We live in French villages, and the people are very courteous. They are extremely quick in saying dollars and cigarettes. I, with all the rest, will be tickled when we can set foot once more in God's country. I was transferred from the organization when I came overseas with and have a wonderful position. Met a boy from Watoma or Wild Rose occasionally, but not from Hancock. Give my best regards to all and tell them I would be glad to hear from them. As the war came to an end, the letters took on a more poignant tone, but there was also a great deal of sadness. This one was rather uplifting and meaningful from Joe Christensen. Joe Christensen, who was listed among those seriously wounded, was heard from again last week. He wrote from Base Hospital 14 in France. Dear Dad, just a few lines to let you know I am still alive and hoping to be home soon. 
have seen some great places and had some wonderful experiences since being in France. I am not the man I was before leaving the U.S., but of a few months on the farm and I'll be okay again. The mustard gas affected my lungs and left me weak. I can't stand much work, but walk around every day and am getting along fine. Have traveled across England from Liverpool to Southampton, then across the English Channel to France, and from there to Bordeaux by train. Was near Bordeaux about three weeks in grape-picking season, had all the grapes I could eat every day. There are men in this hospital from every state in the Union, I guess. We are just like one big family and get along fine because most of us don't feel like quarreling, except at mess time. Give my regards to all the folks and friends. Hope for a speedy return to the good old USA. We'll let you know when I am coming and want best to make six pumpkin pies all for me. Your son, Joe. R.G. Conant tells of the close of the war as he writes from France on November 16, 1918. Dear John, the big show is over and I am still intact. I really had a good time while it lasted, but it sure is some relief to see it quiet down so suddenly. It is nothing to do until tomorrow with this squadron and we are having a good time seeing France. Our CO is a good fellow and consequently our time is our own. I believe I have visited every city and flying field in France. On the morning of the 11th, our artillery in this sector put over the most terrible barrage ever sent during the entire war. I guess they figured it was cheaper to send the shells into Germany than to send them back to the States. Anyway, the poor Germans caught hell until 1059 and 5960 to be exact. The people in the States heard of the signing of the armistice before we did here. And then he signs off with this. Am detailed to go with the squadron that meets President Wilson's ship and may fly to Italy, but no one knows from one day to another what we are going to do. Got official confirmation of downing the balloon. Your brother, R.G. Conant. There were some truly sad stories from the boys who did not make it back home, such as the one with the story titled Soldier Boy Dies Overseas. Edward Cutsforth was born September 4, 1886, in the town of Decorah, Columbia County, Wisconsin, and died at the Stour Bridge Hospital, England, October 22, 1918. He landed in France with the 86th Division and soon after took sick and was taken to the hospital in France. A letter from the nurse in charge dated October the 6th stated that he was ill with pneumonia. The next word received was from First General Hospital Starbridge, England, dated October the 19th, stating that he was dangerously ill and everything was being done for him that human skill could do. That just proved not to be enough. Two letters attesting to the character of Edward Cutsworth made the paper. Mr. and Mrs. E. Cutsworth, Westfield, Wisconsin, it was dated. Kind friends. Just a few lines of sympathy and sorrow to you and your family in behalf of the son who came over to fight for our flag, and death overtook him from pneumonia instead of a wound from a German gun. I wish to say that Sister Coffee, who was in charge of our ward and the ward he was in, stood by his bedside from 6 p.m. to 12 midnight and all day the next day until he passed away that night at 11.40 p.m., also, the doctor was with him most of the time, and when he was not attending to the other sick and wounded soldiers here, who have been on the front line fighting for liberty. He was buried with American honors. Services were directed by Private White, one of our boys. We also used the stars and stripes over the casket, which was beautiful. The American, British, and Australian soldiers bought a beautiful floral pillow. I will send you pictures of it in a few days. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dodie Land from the Madison Isthmus.